Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I'm your host, Dr. Jessica Hockman. Today's topic is about adoption, and I'm excited to have on as today's guest, my friend, Dr. Jennifer Bliss. Dr. Bliss is currently the Director of Adoptions and Foster Care at Vista Del Mar, which is located in Southern California. Dr. Bliss is very passionate about adoption. She has worked in the field for over two decades, and she has even written a book. In our conversation, you will hear Dr. Bliss answer the most common questions I hear about adoption. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer Bliss. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. So tell us, how how long have you worked in the field of adoption? Um, Probably about 24 years, which unfortunately dates me. Um, But um, I thought I was going to be a child psychologist growing up and found my heart was in social welfare. And my first um, leap into interviewing and accepting the position um, wound up being at a nonprofit adoption agency, and the rest is history. What do you do exactly? What does your job entail? Well, the department that I work with at Vista Del Mar um, oversees domestic adoption, which is private infant agency adoption. It's nonprofit, but is private paid. Foster care department or foster care program, which is a foster family agency. Um, and that's where individual homes open up the doors to take in children who are in the foster care system um, to help them either reunify with their uh, family or if an adoption plan looks like that's going to be the goal, to either adopt them or help transition them to a forever home. The other program is um, international services, uh, which the international adoption world has changed dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years, Um, and so we've obviously shifted a lot in our services as well. Um, And while people still can adopt internationally, it's a lot harder than it was 15 years ago. Um, And then we also have a post-adoption program for anybody or birth parents, anybody that's been touched by adoption who needs some clinical guidance or logistical referrals um, ongoing, we have a wonderful social worker that helps with that because adoption is a lifelong journey. It's not a one-time process. Um, it affects so many people on a permanent level for generations. And how would parents that are looking to adopt find the baby? How does that process work? Okay. Most of the time, um, when a woman is pregnant and she's considering adoption, these days she's not opening up the penny saver. She is looking online. She's asking her doctor. Um, and eventually she might find herself reaching out to us or one of our adoption professional partners that we work with that would send her our way. On the other side, people who are looking to expand their family through adoption come to us for a variety of reasons. It could be that they always knew that they were meant to adopt in their heart. That's the way they're meant to build their family. It could be infertility. It could be secondary infertility. Um, It could be that they're a same-sex couple. It could be that they are a single individual looking to um, become a parent. So the, as far as the hopeful parents end of it, there's a home study process. It's about three months long and it's um, a way of earning, I guess, your license to adopt. And with that license to adopt after that assessment process, uh, you can adopt in all 50 states for domestic adoption. Anybody that wants to adopt, whether you're going to adopt internationally through foster care or um, domestic infant adoption needs that home study in order to bring a child into their home for adoption. Okay, so so during that three months, is somebody coming to their home and and asking them questions, seeing what they live like? What does that three months well, a look lot of like? pe- Yeah, a lot of people are really scared that they're going to get turned away or denied. And in general, we're in the profession of finding homes 
for children that are going to be loving and nurturing and stable. You don't need to be wealthy. Um, you can um, you can have a therapist. You can have a medical diagnosis. You can have a DUI when you're 20s. People have lives. They have stories. Um, and we don't want people coming in thinking that they have to give us the answer we're looking for because that will only actually um, work out badly in the wrong one, the long run because something will come up and we're more concerned about transparency than we are about people having a story from their past. So I encourage people to be upfront, be honest, be tra transparent and candid. And what we find is any glitch, 95% of the time, we can work around it. We can, if you, you know, have a medical diagnosis, that's not the end of the world. We will probably need an extra piece of paper from your doctor saying that um, you are compliant with treatment and there's no concerns about your ability to parent. But wonderful parents come from all walks of life with all different challenges and are wonderful parents. What if you're on an antidepressant or you have uh, anxiety? I know that question comes up a lot. That's actually a really common thing people are worried about telling us. And we see it as a strength in the sense that if you are on an antidepressant, if you've been to therapy and you continue to go to therapy, what we see there is someone who is aware of their own needs and advocates for themselves and does what they need to do to get the help they need and make sure that they are the best versions of themselves for the child they're going to be parenting. So wonderful. If someone struggles with anxiety and they see a therapist regularly and they are on medication and they've figured out the regimen that works for them, I'm happy about that. That's great. That's really nice to hear. I, I like hearing that you don't have to be perfect because I'm sure that that you feel so vulnerable having somebody evaluate you and decide if you're fit enough to be you know, in charge of a parent. I'm sure I can see how that would be very anxiety provoking. So that's helpful to hear. The process can feel very personal and invasive um, because sitting down with somebody you don't know and them asking you about your childhood traumas or the way you were parented or what you wish your parents did differently or what they did right or all those things you wouldn't necessarily share with a stranger. So I honor the fact that it's an uncomfortable process. Um, and we just ask people to come forward um, with as much transparency as they can, knowing that if they were in charge of deciding whether or not a baby should go into a home, they'd take it seriously too. Absolutely. So then after that three-month process and you have that license to adopt mm -hmm. in all 50 states, what do parents expect from that point forward? We have a variety of um, options that we recommend given the client's um, budget, um, sense of urgency, and we help them decide which matching professional might be best for them. Um, and that person or entity or professional has an expertise that we don't because our wheelhouse really is in social work. And just to take a step back, I, I get kind of confused with all the various types of adoption. I hear mm -hmm. terms like private and open, mm -hmm. closed. Can you explain for someone like me who doesn't quite grasp all the different terminology what what it all means? Right, of course. Um, well, private adoption usually refers to infant adoption. And that can be usually agencies and attorneys work together. Um, and um, open and closed adoption, um, that spans, that's a philosophy of adoption practice that spans all different types of adoption. So international adoption, it is, Harder to have openness, obviously, but records 
are getting better. The same reasons why it's more difficult to adopt internationally now are the same reasons why um, when um, the protocols and expectations are better because the threshold for practice has um, increased. So there is more openness now um, in a sense of um, information exchange when it comes to international adoption than it was 10 to 15 years ago. As far as closed versus open, so when we look at foster care and foster care, foster to adoption, that also has shifted to usually there was, if we look back 15, 20 years ago, there was rarely openness. Now there's a attention and understanding that keeping the link of the biological family in the child's life is important. And the hope is that a biological relative will be able to stay in the child's life um, to keep that connection. And the county or the foster family agency should help facilitate and foster that and set expectations for the future. Um, it is, can be tough because in foster care to adoption, it's not a voluntary placement. This, is, this was an origin, this child came into the system due to a detention. So the story is different. The biological parents not coming to the table voluntarily. So it can be more difficult, but it's still worth it if it can be done. Um, and if it doesn't make sense or doesn't feel appropriate or the biological parent isn't a good match to stay in the child's life ongoing, um, there is a hope that an aunt, uh, a grandparent, somebody in that child's life is going to be able to stay involved um, to provide that link. Uh, when we look at private infant adoption, that is different because the expected parent is coming to the table voluntarily wanting to make an adoption plan. So you have a dynamic where everybody is on, quote, the same side from the beginning. That's the hope. And because you have that alliance between the hopeful adoptive parents and the expectant parents, a real genuine relationship can be formed that can last forever. And the child growing up seeing their parents aligned and in a positive relationship with their birth parents really is powerful in reaffirming to them that they're in the family they are meant to be in. So in your experience, is this the most successful way to proceed for long-term best outcomes? Absolutely. And you said that really well. Um, all the longitudinal studies um, really continue to reaffirm that when we're talking about the child's psychological and emotional health, along with many other um, outcomes, openness really makes a qualitative difference and a quantitative difference um, in the outcomes of the child. There's less externalizing behaviors during adolescence. There's less confusion to an adoptee as to who their real parents are because they know their birth parents in a very real role and a relative, just like you and I know our cousins, right? So there's actually less confusion as to who their real parent is if they have a role in the child's life because it's so obvious to them that it's not the parent versus some concept out there that they're left wondering, maybe that is my real mommy. As we know, kids are very concrete and the more concrete information and the more concrete experience we can give them helps them understand and solidify um, in their minds what's reality. So if we're asking a child to fill in the blanks, or just trust us, they loved you, and that's why they made this decision. At some point, the child's going to say, well, if they love me so much, why don't they want to know me? You know, I'm just thinking as a parent who is, or as, an, as a parent who is adopting, 
I could see how there'd be a natural fear that their adopted child will want to, you know, go back or or leave because they are not the birth parents. How do you assuage fears from parents in that perspective, just by providing the data that you've just discussed? Yes, um, both anecdotes, data, etc. Um, the Donaldson some executive summary of 2012 um, really combined a lot three major longitudinal studies of open adoption from the very beginning, asking all three members of the triad, which is the adopted parents, the adoptee, and the birth parent, um, about their experience, and they followed. Closed adoptions, semi-open adoptions, and open adoptions. Semi-opening being um, the child doesn't necessarily know the birth parent, even though there's exchange of information between the birth parents and the adoptive parents. Um, and what they found for all three parties um, was overwhelmingly consistent throughout uh, across all three studies. For the adoptive parents, they found that those in open relationships were more secure in their role as the real parents than those in closed or semi-open because they were reaffirmed consistently who the real parent was. Even if you're at the zoo, let's say you do an annual visit because you spend a day at the zoo and that child falls and skims his knee, he's not going to reach for his birth parent. He reaches for his mommy or his daddy. And there's no this invisible thread that they're going to leap into the birth parent's arms um, because they have a sense of, you know, that's where they were born. That's not reality. This person will be a relative just like any other relative. So if you're worried that your child's going to grow up and run away to their aunt Cindy, that's, it might happen because they're going to get mad at you at some point. Um, but if you have a relationship with a birth mom that's strong to the point that they did run away to their birth mom at 14 or whatever, you have the confidence that she is going to pick you up, pick up the phone and say, guess who just showed up at my door? I'll be driving him back to you. Um, all along the way, an adoptee might use the fact that they're an adoptee to try and get back at you because it's low-hanging fruit. So whether or not you have openness, your nine-year-old might say to you, well, if I lived with my real mom, she would let right. me stay up later. Right? Because... Right. It's there. Let's try it. So if you run right. away and slam the door to your room and cry, they got gotcha. you. If you're able to say, really, I wonder if we call Marissa and ask her that what she would say. And you know, you've known Marissa now for over nine years. So you know she's going to say, sweetie, you need to listen to your mommy. And that's where that ended, that low-hanging fruit. The purpose of open adoption, one of the main purposes, along with having the child have access to know who they are in a historical level um, is the, for the child seeing that alliance between the birth parents and the adoptive parents. And that's a primary relationship in open adoption. People think, oh, it's the birth mother picking up the child and running away. No, the birth mother actually visits you, the entire family, because in reality, her primary relationship is with you. I mean, that's where she grew the relationship from the beginning. The child witnessing the alliance of the birth parents and adoptive parents that does the most for the child, psychologically. That's really... I think that's really, really helpful to hear. You know, honestly, my my first, I have two first cousins that are adopted and my, the oldest of my adopted cousins, uh, who I'm very close with, he did reach out to his birth parents, uh, uh, you know, in his adult, as an adult. 
And he wasn't sure how he was going to feel about it, if he was going to be feel very connected to her. And he said when he met her, it was really nice to meet her. They had some things in common. But at the end of the day, she didn't feel like his his mom. His, you know, my aunt is his mom. Right. And I think that was really, I think when my, my aunt heard that, she felt a big relief because, you know, I, I, I know there's a lot of anxiety before the meeting. She, she encouraged it. She wanted them to meet. But um, it makes sense that everybody has some, some insecurities or some questions about it. And I think you made a good point that there was such relief afterwards. And the adoptive parents I've spoken to who, you know, support and encourage their child at an adult age to have this reunion it was really rough for them emotionally because of these insecurities and anxiety and the 18 or 21 years of buildup. Right. And I think now listen, 20 years ago, doctors, professionals, psychologists were not necessarily encouraging continuing a relationship as they are now. So I don't, I blame, blame anybody for having closed adoptions. That was what the norm was. We didn't have the information that we do now. Um, but having an ongoing relationship, which is not every other Sunday, you know, you're getting together. It's you just know how to reach each other. You can text each other questions. You're at the doctor with your child and um, and the doctor says, you know, this might be eczema. Is there a history of eczema in the family? Right. And the parent can say, hold on, let me check with Nikki. Right. Those simple things that make it natural almost take away the ominous power that adoption can have over a family. And it normalizes it. And a child doesn't need to ruminate and think about the fact that they're an adoptee and what does their birth mother look like and does she love them and what is she doing now and is she a princess in England or is she a horrible person? Right. You know, the kids don't fill in gaps with like mundane, right? Right. So you just kind of take the power out of it. And one of the things the study showed is that if there is openness in the adoption, kids don't think about their adoption so much. They just there's not much to ruminate about. Takes the mystery away. Takes the mystery, and they're just like, why would I think about it? it just is. Right. Um, so it actually openness does a, a lot of the opposite of people's fears are. I have a question. A lot of parents that are interested in adoption, they they are fearful of what it might cost and how long the process might take. Um, is it really that expensive? Are there if it is expensive, are there ways that parents can get assisted? Do you have any insight into 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 that question? You know, it's such a. um spectrum as to what it can cost. The home study process usually costs about $3,000 and that's for that license. Um, and that from there, it could be, you know, five to 8,000 more. It could be 20 to 40,000 more because people take their own journeys and the professionals that they hire and the matches that they say yes to. So a match that lives an hour from you, where there's not a lot of intense financial need is going to look very different than if you match with somebody across the country where you're going to wind up making multiple trips and staying, staying there for weeks when the baby is born and playing and paying professionals in both states because it needs to be legal in both states. So that's I why see. there's a wide variety. Usually, as far as the timeline, after those three months, it's hard to say because, again, some match professionals will tell you, oh, there's an 18-month wait. Some will say, oh, there's a 24-month average weight, but nobody I would hope is practicing in a way where when an expectant parent comes to them, they say, okay, these are the, this is the next person up on the list. The expectant parent has a right to choose from a wide variety of people that she might choose to parent her child who are open to her circumstance. So 
it also is a situation where we have to look at the adoptive parents' parameters. So if they're open to a wide range of circumstance, there's a higher chance that they're going to match than somebody who's open to a narrow range of circumstance, which they have every right to. And I want them to be honest with themselves when they're making those decisions so they don't get themselves in a situation where they're in a match where they're not actually comfortable. But it's really hard to say, oh, expect it to take 18 months, expect it to take 24 months because there are so many factors. A good adoption professional will be able to advise you on the most likely consequences or effects of the decisions you are making throughout this process. So if you're going to have a very narrow profile, it's important to understand that you might wait a little longer, which is 100% okay because what's the most important is you wind up in the right match, not how quickly you match. Do you guys follow families for for extended periods beyond the adoption process? And when you do, what do, what do you find? Are there are there surprises? Like, what do you do? You see any mm-hmm. anything that um, contributes to success or the opposite? Anything that contributes to um, to difficulty? It's a really good question. Um, we don't necessarily send out questionnaires, but because I've been doing this for so long, um, I do keep in touch through social media through families as well as the agencies I've worked for have annual gatherings for the families. So we see kids that are six months. We see kids that are 13. After that, it's hard to get them to come to picnics. But um, (laughs) we are able to um, at least have those relationships and see the relationships between the kids, which is nice. One thing that over and over again I saw and was reaffirmed in the studies is that while hopeful adoptive parents can have their fears and anxieties about openness, what we find is as the years go on, it's the adoptive parents who are reaching out more and desiring a higher degree of contact with the birth parents than vice versa. Interesting. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think because the birth parents, I don't want to say move on, but they move forward, especially, especially in open relationships, the birth parents are able to heal and move forward without their ruminating and searching and wondering, does the child think I didn't love them? Do they, are they mad at me, et cetera? So they're able to move forward in a healthy way um, and continue to live their life knowing they have this relationship in their back pocket. As parents, you don't necessarily move on. You're obsessed with your child. Like your child is your world. So you right. wind up thinking more about the birth parent and especially have a good relationship with them wanting to be like, Oh my gosh, Oh, I had to text you this picture. She's so cute. Um, you wind up wanting that relationship, that connection more also because you, there's a desire to want to make sure your child has that if, and you know, ever they're interested. And I see openness as kind of an insurance policy because every child's different. Some children have no interest in or care, care less about knowing about their biological family. Some children would ruminate about it and think about it and it would affect them if they didn't. Um, You don't know who you're going to be raising. So making that connection, having that relationship gives you the foundation knowing that you're going to be able to meet your child's emotional, psychological needs for their developmental health, whoever they are, in that way at least. I think it's important to remember that the women who come to the table to make a voluntary adoption plan are really selfless. It's not easy to do this. It's not that they're not maternal. It's whatever's going on in their life, they feel like their child deserves better. So that person is that person. They're not going to flip overnight. So people say, oh, they're going to come back in the middle of the night and steal the baby back if they know where I live. That person never would have placed their child for adoption. We're working with a selected group of people who 
while they have all different personalities, they're really determined, really committed, and really in it for the best interest of the child. Or they done, or they would have just either gone on welfare to raise the child, or done made a different decision. They really had an idea of what they want for this child, and they were going to stop at nothing to do it, including break their own heart. So, in your experience, just to reassure anybody out there that could be interested in adoption and has this fear. How often has that situation happened where the mom has changed their mind? Okay, that, you, that, that, that's total two different situations. I'm talking about okay. oh, got it. Okay. parents ongoing, parents saying, oh, if I know the birth mom, she's going to come in the middle of the night and steal the baby back or something like that. Uh, okay, okay. I, okay. That's sorry, one sorry, sorry. scenario. That okay. doesn't happen okay. involuntary. That would make the news. And I don't think other than Lifetime movies, we don't see that for a reason. <laughs> but another fear people have is what if I invest my energy, my time, my finances into this expectant mother and she decides after the baby's born, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to do this. I want a parent. That absolutely happens. I'd have to say that happens about 6% of the time. Um, it's rare to happen after the hospitals, two to 3% of the time that you take a baby home from the hospital and it takes a week or so for rights to be um, terminated, so she could change her mind during that time. And 2 to 3% of the time it happens. It's usually not out of the blue because we're seeing ambivalence at the hospital. We talk to adoptive parents ahead of time. You know, I know you're taking this baby home. She's struggling right now. See yourself as caregivers, not parents. Okay. Um, but there is a percentage of time probably for, of, of the, you know, maybe 4% of the time, 5% of the time, maybe up to 6% of the time where at the hospital she chooses not to place. It's disappointing. It's really sad for everybody. And it's 100% her right. This is a plan. Once a baby's born, she's going to have to make that decision again. And that understanding that is part, part of going into being an adoptive parent and matching is that this is not malicious. She's doing her best. And sometimes she just can't do it. Um, and any adoption professional you're working with should be compassionate towards both parties on that. And when you're ready, you're back up again, ready to be matched. You're going to have to take a beat to process and be supported. Uh, but it's really important to remember this is not a contract. This is a woman growing her own baby, giving yes. birth to her own baby. And she is the mother of that baby until she signs those relinquishments and it's acknowledged. Yes. And it makes sense. I mean, there's, yeah. it makes sense that after delivering, there would be a percent of moms that change their minds. Absolutely. Because as real yeah. as it may be, until that baby's in your arms, you're doing your best to really figure out how you're going to be able to handle it. And all the logical reasons in the world might, they do go out the window. And what I talked to birth parents about, it's going to feel like your heart's betraying you. Um, and it will be up to you whether or not you want to continue the adoption plan or choose to parent. It sounds like on you really have to have so much compassion on all ends going through this process. Um, it's so true. And a lot of times when adoptive parents start the process, they might not be thinking necessarily about that perspective, but they do go through trainings and conversations with us in education. And you see the light bulb turn on. And how they do realize um, and have greater empathy and understanding for the birth parents' experience which helps them be a better client, be a better adoptive parent in a match and be a better parent to their child because children will sense how you feel about their birth parents, no matter what words you use. And they know this is who they came from. So you want them yes. to feel like they came from someone good. For parents that are considering adoption, 
where do you advise them to start? Should they call your agency or what, yeah. what's, what's the process? Well, the first thing they need to do is have a home study because like I said, in any form of adoption, you need a home study. Only adoption agencies can provide home studies. Adoption attorneys can't. Adoption attorneys can do things that agencies can't when it comes to certain things. But when it comes to the home study process that everybody needs, only adoption agencies can do them. Okay. If you live in Southern California, we would love to do it for you. If you live somewhere else, look up um, nonprofit adoption agencies in your area. Do you have any general advice for parents that are considering Mm -hmm. adoption? I think the best piece of advice I can give is remember that this is the beginning of your parenting journey and the choices that you make during your adoption process are your first parenting decisions for this child. How you choose to adopt, the decisions that you make, how you treat this birth mother, all of those things are the first decisions. And you want them twofold. One, you want to be proud of the decisions you make when you're explaining them to your child one day, when an 18-year-old says, oh, well, what was this like my birth mother was sleeping on the floor and, and she asked you to buy a mattress for her? What happened? You want to be proud of the way you handled that. Yes. Um, additionally, when you're going through this process, you're going to have a lot of uncomfortable feelings and a lot of feelings of being out of control because you are. Um, remember when you're crossing and navigating those circumstances, are you making decisions based on what's in your um, comfort zone or are you making decisions based on what's in your future child's best interest? Keep that forefront of your brain as you're making these first parenting decisions. I think this is really helpful to hear. I think I think a lot of families that are interested in adoption, as you as you mentioned before, a lot of people, it's in their heart. They're interested. They've always wanted to do it. And it's really nice to know that it can be done and done successfully, successfully well. Do you love what you do? I do. I do. You're doing the ultimate mitzvah. Thank you. It's true. All right. So is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you'd like to convey to the audience listening? Probably filled their head with enough for one session. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really, really helpful. I really appreciate your perspective. Really an honor to have an expert in adoption come come on the podcast. So thank you so much. Well, it was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, I would be so thankful if you would leave a review and even better, share with a friend. Your support is really what helps this podcast grow. Also, if you have an idea for a future Ask Dr. Jessica episode, feel free to send me an email to askdrjessicamd at gmail.com. Until next week.